Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. For the first eight years of my life, I was a we. My world and David's world were the same. I didn't foresee the change would come. I didn't know the twins eventually led their own lives. We were always referred to as the twins. Our thoughts commingled in our heads before a word was uttered and we spoke the same words together. Only one of us needed to speak. We are tired now. We want something to drink. Can we play outside? So when David began to have thoughts I had no access to, to dream of things I'd never dream of, and to travel to unknown places to receive teachings I'd never learn, I wasn't ready. As we grew up, I more or less learned how to say I, but not without moments of utter failure, when I felt like an unwhole person, a half of something. Still, I did have my own existence, a woman who was born a twin, but lived alone. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network, and today I'm speaking with author Rachel Stolzman Gullo, author of The Sign for Drowning, about her new novel, Practice Dying, the winner of several honors and awards. Rachel received her MFA in creative writing from Sarah Lawrence College and currently works in public health, in HIV prevention and drug user health. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two young sons. Let's get to it. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Khalid. It's such a pleasure. So let's start with you telling us all how you came to write this book. It it was written, uh, it was conceived of over many years and, and also written over a number of years. And I actually, I had a job working with people with mental illness. And there was one young man in particular who was mentally ill and also a very inspiring Buddhist. And I, I thought of him as somebody who was spiritually enlightened more than the rest of us, but I also saw that he was a really dysfunctional person in terms of daily living. And um, when I first started imagining this book, he was sort of at the center, but I realized I wanted to turn him into two characters. 
um, and these two sides of him to to be broken into two different people. Because in fiction, you want conflict and, pe- and characters who can bump against each other. Um, but I started thinking of the um, pathology and enlightenment as a, as a spectrum. And that you couldn't have one without the other. Are you a, are you a meditator? Are you a Buddhist also? I'm not a Buddhist. I f- um, I'm not a practicing Buddhist. Um, but I feel like Buddhism is something that... I've tried for many years not to pick up <laughs> and uh, that every time I come close to it or meet someone who I'm very drawn to, I, um, I have frequently found out that people who really um, touch me and um, make sense to me are often Buddhist and, um, and uh, many of its practices and philosophies I, um, I use and I practice but I, I've never had a teacher. And without a teacher, you can't be a practicing Buddhist. So how did you come up with this title, Practice Dying? Uh, that's a funny question. Um, I, I thought I made it up. And to me, it meant a certain thing that was happening in my, within my plot. Um, and to me, it meant a couple of things, but it meant... Um, practicing for your for your own death so that you're ready but it also meant um, learning that that all of us go through losses in life that really force you to change like the the biggest losses that we go through force us to change and that that change is um is a bit of a rebirth for the person who went through the loss um, and so to me, when I came up with that title, I was really, really happy with it. And then one day I was like, you know what, I better Google that phrase and, and see if it, if it already exists. And yes, it does. <laughs> um, and it turns out that, um, it's a phrase that Plato said on his deathbed. Um, and apparently when he was asked on his deathbed, um, what has your life taught you? He said, practice dying. And, um, and it also is a phrase in Buddhism, mm. which means um, I, very, it, it's very aligned with what I thought it would mean, like accepting loss, accepting uh, the ephemeral qualities of life and, um, you know, being, have, practicing non-attachment. Mm-hmm. So who are your main characters? Introduce us to them. And how were they named? Okay. Um, so like I said, my main characters were, um, fictional characters that came to me from taking a real life person and turning him into two people. And, um, so I made them twins and I, I wanted them to be male and female. So they're fraternal twins. And one of, I wanted one of them to, to, by outwardly appearance, have, pathologies. Um, I wanted her to be dysfunctional. Um, and so that's, uh, one of the twins is Jamila and I wanted her brother to, by outward appearances, be enlightened. Um, and that's David and David, um, from a very young age, the age of eight, um, sort of discovered his spiritual calling. He, um, he heard of the Dalai Lama and he, 
was drawn to go hear him speak. And he snuck out of his home in Manhattan and went to hear the Dalai Lama speak. And he felt um, some sparks in him, like that this was something he sort of knew, but had never been taught. Um, and when I was writing it, my um, the people in my writing group who were reading it, they were like, but is he really enlightened? Like, do you want him to really be enlightened? And I was like, I think I really do. I think I really do want him to be enlightened. So that's David and Jamila. And um, one of them is a Hebrew name, David, and one of them is an Arabic name, Jamila. And I wanted, I was just making them opposing forces in every way. And um, and then I decided to write a scene where Jamila's asked about their two names, and she explains it, that her parents were so devoted to uh, helping to make peace in the Middle East that they gave their children one a Hebrew name and one an Arabic name. Mm-hmm. That was really nice. Um, the part about eight-year-old David sneaking out of the house and taking himself in Manhattan to a lecture and then sitting through a lecture that resonated with him at the age of eight was really, really moving. And sh- what was most shocking is that then he got a private audience with the Dalai Lama. How, how'd you come up with that? I just try, I just tried to imagine how that could unfold. And, um, and I, the Dalai Lama in, in my novel is a fictionalized character. Um, but I'm, the character is meant to be our current, the 14th Dalai Lama, um, the Dalai Lama who the whole world knows. Um, but I completely fictionalized him for, for the sake of the novel. And, um, I tried to imagine that he, that David was special enough that, um, that David approached the Dalai Lama at, at the end of this lecture and that the Dalai Lama at one glance could see that he should give David some time, some of his time. And then he sort of, uh, um, as you'd read, he sort of questions David to, to sort of like to, to test out, you know, who is this kid and, and what does he know and what does he think he knows? And then David takes on the concern about the China, China's occupation of Tibet and the whole world of the Dalai Lama. Uh, why is he so concerned? Why did he make that his world? Well, I think that I think it's because of his relationship with the Dalai Lama. Um, not not every Buddhist um is a follower of the Dalai Lama or of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but if you are, as David is, um, those, this would be your utmost concern. And um, the, uh, the 14th Dalai Lama lives in exile. Um, since he was a teenager, he was forced out of Tibet um, for his own safety. And he moved to Dharamsala, India. And in Dharamsala, India, he created Tibet in exile. And um, so Tibetan Buddhists and um, all kinds of followers of the Dalai Lama get to Dharamsala, where they are free, which is in the Himalayan mountains across from Tibet. Um, they go there to practice Tibetan Buddhism in, in freedom. And even more importantly, to revere and celebrate the Dalai Lama as a person. Um, and so that was all David's... Um, tradition and um 
and like the Dalai Lama himself, he was pained and and concerned about Tibet, about Tibetans. Um, and as you see about halfway through the book about the trend of self-immolation in Tibet. Have you considered sending a copy of the book to the Dalai Lama? I have. I fantasized and dreamed of like, what if I could get this into his hands? I did send a copy. I've been a, um, a supporter for many years of the um, Center for Tibetan Buddhism. And I sent a copy to the president. Um, I didn't get a response. <laughs> so, so now let's talk about the other twin, Jamila, called Jimmy. She has a, also a complex life and career. So she is meant to represent the pathology and um, in all, hum- you know, in the, the spectrum between pathology and enlightenment. And when I say meant to, um, I think the concept of for the book, the thematic concept, was that um, people who appear to be um, ill and pathologized, but particularly mentally, um, that if you look inside, you will find enlightenment in some ways and you you will find many gifts and people who are gifted or enlightened or are genius um if you look inside you will also find many dysfunctions and uh so that that's kind of how this story goes plot wise that you find out each of them are that they're more alike than than you would have thought in the opening and in the opening they're estranged from each other um, I forgot your original question, Galit. <laughs> um, well, that's okay. We're talking. Oh, about Jamila. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. I think I guess I answered it in part. It yeah. was, you know, it it takes so many drafts to make a novel work, and um, in some of my early drafts, Jamila had no career, and I just, you know, there's so much to do. I I didn't I didn't I didn't give her a, a career, and um, when I then realized she needed a career. Um, I gave her a career very close to my heart, some, some, a type of work I've done similar things to, um, which was working with pregnant teenagers in, in Brooklyn, New York. And I made that her career and something she felt very passionate about. And that she was, so she was somebody who was hurting herself, literally. She had like cutting and self-harm tendencies but she was somebody who devoted her life to, to helping other young women. Yeah. And then she also has a spiritual kind of experience as a child, completely different than the one David has, but hers has something to do with a wolf. Could you talk about the wolf as a character? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for calling the wolf a character. Um, so that's sort of her, her art um, alter ego. And she comes up, so because she was self-harming as a child, she ended up in therapy as a child. And the very first time she saw the wolf, um, it, was, it was something that buoyed her and made her feel special and made her feel chosen because this wolf, she imagined this wolf coming out of the woods into, into her yard and choosing her as its human. Um, and the way it's written, it's the lines between fiction and fantasy are very blurred in that scene, so that I think the reader's not sure if a real wolf came out of the woods or not. But um, it's simultaneous to Jamila hurting herself in a serious way for the first time. She sees the wolf and does something very dangerous. 
And, um, and that continues through her life that when she's mm-hmm. going to do something very dangerous to herself, that wolf appears. And, um, yet she sees that wolf as a friend and as a, um, as a presence that, that makes her special. Um, and I think that that might be true for a lot of people who get caught up in self harm or compulsive behavior that, um, there's something about it that, that also makes them feel. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off unique and um and that's part of why it's hard to resist so then she goes through a traumatic time and instead of calling david who is somewhere in uh across the ocean somewhere in Mm -hmm. i guess in dharamsala Mm -hmm. so instead of calling him because she's suffering she calls him because she feels like he's suffering that was really interesting um um, yes and no i um unless i'm forgetting (laughs) each each beat along the way he he reaches out to her after this is when no this is when she calls to say come home she has a twin's intuition yes. and she called. She does. Um, she does have a, yes, he is missing. He was, he had been sent, the Dalai Lama had sent him from Dharamsala to Tibet. Um, and he didn't really understand why he had been sent to Tibet. And um, much later in the novel, um, we discover why he had been sent to Tibet. But um, he's sent to Tibet. He is miserable there. And he feels he's been exiled by the Dalai Lama and sent someplace where the Dalai Lama could not go himself. And, um, and David starts sort of plummeting mentally and, um, and spiritually because he's supposed to see a teacher there. Um, I'm not giving any spoilers. This happens in chapter two, uh, but he's supposed to, um, he's been assigned to a new teacher in Tibet and he doesn't go to the monastery and he doesn't report to the teacher, um, which is a very extreme um, uh, faux pas, if you will. And, uh, and Jamila and her, Jamila and her mother are worried about David and Jamila uh, won't tell her mother this, but she thinks that something is very wrong. She pretends that she's not worried. Um, and then and actually David calls her and then she says to David, I, I am in the, um, I am in trouble. Would you come home? So she does ask him to come home. Um, but he's, they are both 
in trouble at that moment. So without giving anything away, I'd like to know, is saving or not being able to save people from death an important theme in your book? Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) But I wouldn't say from death. I would say from suffering. Ah, from suffering. Yes. So David has taken the vow of a bodhisattva. Um, When he was a teenager, he did that. And that's not something that's um, like um, this privilege that that not many people could accomplish or or reach that level. Um, Any of us are free to take the vow of a bodhisattva. Um, I don't think you would do it unless you were practicing Buddhism and learning about it. But um, basically, a, a bodhisattva is someone who will not only strive to end their own suffering, but will strive to end the suffering of those around them everywhere. Um, and so that's a beautiful thing to do, to be a bodhisattva. And David um, unquestioningly took that vow. Um, but David has a very fatal flaw in that it's he doesn't always see the suffering around him. And so the he, he's um, he's failing at that, um, and I think I've tried to make it. I tried to show that that there are people who do that everywhere in every corner of the world, whether they've taken that vow or not. There are people that um, do small and large things to to help those who are suffering around them. That's why it was so interesting when David arrives. Jamila has just come back from the hospital and he's stinging because a fellow monk told him that he doesn't always see suffering. He's, he's really hurt by that. But then it's not clear if he really sees his own sister's suffering. Does he? Yes. No, he does not. And that's one of his journeys um, through this novel. Um, And yes, his, um, one of his closest friends who's, 10 years older and has been um, 10 years wiser than him um, says to him, uh, you know, in a flippant passing casual way, you're not seeing suffering. And, you know, in today's language, you would say like, you're not woke. And, um, and David is very stung by that, but he can't snap his fingers and start to see. And, um, and Jamila is one, maybe the hardest person for him to see. Um, just like I, um, in my experience, I think, you know, the people you love the most and who are closest to you um, can be the hardest people to truly see. Mm-hmm. And that is his yeah. problem. So um, what can you tell us about the twins' relationship with their grandmother? She's an important character. Yeah. And I, um, I break out in a smile when anyone mentions the character of their grandma um, because I created her whole cloth from my real grandma. And, um, oh. yeah, and my, um, my grandma and I were incredibly close. We were, like, for a period of time, the last 10 years of her life, I, I feel like we were best friends. And uh, when she died, she was 90, and I was 30. And uh, we were having a renaissance to our relationship because I had moved back to New York City where she lived and we were spending a lot of time together and, um, and she, we, we just had an incredibly strong connection and the character in the book is, um, is, I like to say she's a non-fictionalized version of my grandma. 
Um, yeah. I and it. Uh, she took um, both of the twins got a lot of comfort from her. They did. What about the parents? Well, um, I think there was a ton of love and affection there too. Uh, so the grandma is the mother's mother. And, um, but there was something that, that I say in the book um, that some, something skipped a generation to connect the grandma to the granddaughter. It's like the, they were alike um, as people. They were similar as people, whereas the love and affection was absolutely there with the, with the daughter slash mother in the middle. But, um, but she had a different personality. Right. Now, I'm wondering if you uh, based the parents on anybody in real life. Uh, they're kind of a collage of um, some some of my parents, some of my aunt and uncle, um, mm. some fiction. So there, um, some photographs, like uh, just old family photographs, where I was like, I think that this, you know, that photo of my mom in that burgundy sweater is sort of how I pictured the mother in this novel. But also, I, you know, because so- the grandmother really was my grandma. Um, some of some of the links between those two characters are also based on on my real life mother and grandmother. I hope they liked the book. Your folks. <laughs> okay. Well, my my grandma had already has you know died long before the book was written even, um, and that was part of the pleasure of putting her in it was I you know I sp- I felt like having all this connection to her mm-hmm. while I was writing. I thought you know I haven't. This is my second novel, and uh, I never put. It's funny. I like I did this thing about putting someone from my life in in the book. I I've, I haven't done that in the past, and I I very much doubt I'll do it in the future. I was like, eh, I think we all get one pass to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the most difficult part of the book for you to write? Um, plot is always hard, always to, to get enough, um, enough drama, enough tension to keep the tension going, um, from chapter to chapter. Um, so the ordering of the book, um, and there was some, there were, there were probably five or probably four or five really significant drafts of this novel where, you know, major changes happened. It moved a, a decade um, in time. It moved. Um, I added a whole nother continent. Like I think the first draft, um, Dharamsala was mentioned, but we don't go to Dharamsala. Um, by the final draft, um, we spend a lot of time in Dharamsala, um, and we spend a lot of time in Tibet. And so the novel really had to grow, and that was hard. And um, something that became very key to, for me about the story was self-immolation and a character who's a survivor of self-immolation. And that didn't come about until the, the final. Oh, and that was so significant. That was. Yes. Really and it's so, and you know, yes, it's almost like, well, what, how did this novel stand up before that? And I think it probably didn't. And then it did. Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So Rachel, what what are you working on next? Um, I'm wor- I'm working on another novel. I've just recently finished my first draft, but as I've just explained, that that doesn't mean I'm done. Right. <laughs> um, and it's a story about a, a single father who has a severely disabled daughter, and um, and he's also a skyscraper engineer, and so 
he um, he has trouble reconciling imperfection any in anything, and he um, he's going to grow a lot. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm, I'll look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today on the New Books Network, and it's been a pleasure. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much, Kelly. And thank you for listening. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, and I've been talking to Rachel Stolzman Gullo about her book, Practice Dying. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.